0: RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all. Okay, start the thing. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of RNMD, a show about doctors and nurses working together in this mad world of medicine. Oh, my gosh, this episode, this topic is... Probably one of the more detailed ones and one of the more important episodes that we've done. Um, My good friend Jason came on and we explored this topic Um, of where did this role of healthcare administration come from? Where did these people come from? Why are they controlling our hospitals and not us? Um, And to do that, I had to dive way back into actually the history of the hospital to show um, where we started and how we got here. Um, So if you like history and if you are upset and outraged and annoyed at uh, these obvious grasps at power and uh, trying to put doctors and nurses in their place, quote unquote, and make them employees of a hospital rather than acknowledging them as the people who actually see patients and actually know how a hospital should be run, then this episode is for you. Okay. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. Oh my gosh. Okay. Long time never talk.
1: <laughs>
0: um, okay. So um, if you want to just, we could dive right in. If you want to introduce yourself.
1: Sure. Um, I'm Jason Galati. I'm a third year, uh, well, almost fourth year MedPeds resident. Um, <laughs> I work over in Cleveland. Um Nice. Let's see. Uh, My wife is an EM resident. She and I are both uh, into show dogs. We have Newfoundlands. Um, I've been kind of biding my time last few years, getting into a lot of arguments with people about uh, the way I think residency should work. Um, (laughs) That's kind of like what my background is, in my opinion. Um, That's Uh pretty much what I spend all of my time on.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, I'm doing the same thing just with nursing. So that works. Yeah. So I guess you and I started talking about this, uh, you know, idea, like the history of hospital administration and what's going on with that. And I mean, let's just be honest, you and I have been trying to put this episode together for what? Upwards of a month, probably at least, yeah. at least, yeah. Because this topic is huge and it's yeah. really confusing. It was very difficult to find like exactly where it changed hands from, like providers, uh, you know, doctors, nurses, and clergy, basically, to now we have like this upper level management that has no healthcare experience.
1: Yeah, like when I started researching this, I, I just assumed like everything else, like, oh, this will have tons of literature on it. Yeah. Once you hit a certain gap, there's none. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Right. I, that's the same problem I had. It was like, okay, we have like the early, like the 1800s, and then it's like, okay, and then, and then what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's, I mean, we've, I found, I finally found uh, some good information. So I guess a lot of people were interested in this topic. So I guess we'll just take it away.
1: <laughs> yeah. I feel like I'm going to learn a lot on the go.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of tell you about it. Like it's like a story, and you just, interject whenever you want. Oh
1: yeah. Okay.
0: Um. So first I think we just need to do some definitions like basic defining. So um, like a private hospital is a hospital that's managed and funded by an individual or a group of people. A public hospital is a hospital that's fully managed and funded uh, by the state. And in this episode, we're mainly going to be talking about public hospitals. It would open up another Pandora's box if we, maybe someday we can do private hospitals, but for, for now, that's what we're talking about. Okay, so health systems management or healthcare systems management describes the leadership and general management of hospitals, hospital networks, and or healthcare systems, and they ensure that specific outcomes are attained um, and this is according to like their definition like if you look up, mm. you know uh, I, I even googled like if I wanted to go into this you know what what are the roles and responsibilities and this is sort of yeah. like on yeah, on like their website. <laughs> <laughs> so their role is to make sure that health facilities are running smoothly, that the right people are on the right jobs, um, people know what's expected of them, the resources are used efficiently and that you know generally departments are just working towards a common goal. These people, Within their own realm, uh, they are told that they're expected to engage with credibility. I think we're going to find that that might be debatable. <laughs> <laughs> um, creativity, motivation, um, working with complex and dynamic healthcare environments. Um, and and I, I guess I would agree with this. They They say that they have to be good at collaboration, communication skills, financial skills, innovative thinking, organization awareness, um, et cetera. So, okay, a lot of definitions. (laughs) (laughs) Now let's dive into the history a little bit. Um, In the United States, uh, the first degree granting program was established in Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And by 1927, the first two students were received their diplomas. The first modern healthcare systems management program was established in 1934 at the University of Chicago. And these were also two-year programs. Um, And then you could do like an internship. Uh, In 1958, the Sloan program at Cornell University began offering a special program and it was also two years. So I guess these are just like the first times you yeah. see it. And then, you know, as the decades got going, early hospital administrators uh, were called patient directors or superintendents actually is what I saw more often oh. than not. Um, and. At the time, the nurses were the ones actually who took on like administrative responsibilities, like an older nurse would be kind of like more of like a director. Um, And usually, not always, but usually it was affiliated with the church. And so that person would have also been a nun. Over half, I thought this was so interesting, over half of the members of the American Hospital Association in 1916 were graduate nurses. Half were running the hospital. Yeah, nursing. (laughs) Way to go. (laughs) (laughs) And then the other superintendents were doctors, laymen who were like, uh, general people of the public who had, you know, some authority or were community leaders. Um, and then of course, members of the clergy. The reason why it started to change was because around the time of the civil war, I mean, I'm sure everybody is aware every time we have a war, medicine changes, right? Oh yeah, big time. Yeah. <laughs> and that
1: was that was like a huge turning point, just like all the, I mean, I don't even have to go into it that much, just.
0: Go, go into it a little bit, I'm interested.
1: <laughs> it, me- I mean, medicine was very like, I mean, it was kind of the wild west back then, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and there weren't even like a lot of standards. Um, It was just kind of, you know, you got this degree and you kind of flew by wire and you did what you understood to be the correct thing based on whatever teaching you got, but who knows where you got it. Right. And we were seeing a lot of like battlefield injuries at that time. And you know, the technology we have today is completely different. So back then it was just like Cut it off before it gets infected.
0: Right, right. Yeah, gangrene prevention, basically.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And then you, and then after that, you had to deal with all of the sequelae of, you know, having your limb chopped off.
0: Right. Um,
1: Yeah, that's when we start to see like all of these long term patients. And uh, we really see like a huge boom in that around that time.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point too. Um, As somebody who, you know, I had an ankle injury and I live in a modern time and I have a knee scooter, which is like the greatest invention ever. Um, I can't imagine these guys who are on the battlefield and they come home and their limbs are amputated and they don't have, yeah, a prosthetic or something like that's crazy.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, even, even to, I mean, not to go on a tangent, but like even today... Uh, you know, I have these patients who are post-amputation and it's like just getting them connected with services and prosthetics that fit is a whole ordeal, even just to get them out of the hospital, let alone yeah. for follow-up.
0: Oh my god. Like, so I yeah. can't
1: imagine what it was like back then. It's like, here's a stick, walk with it. Like Yeah, literally, like, here's a stick. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> Bye. <laughs> yeah. We made this out of metal attached yeah. to your limb. <laughs> That's terrible. Uh, okay. All right. So anyway. Um, So the American hospital, as we know it today, emerged over the course of about 60 years, um, beginning around the time of the Civil War, like we said. physician staffed hospitals with professional nursing and then specialized departments and services um, were products of like urbanization and economic expansion um, during the second Industrial Revolution. So uh, that you know the war with the second industrial revolution um together with like massive immigration aided the rapid strides in medicine uh overall okay so we're going to go way way back that w- that was like the little overview of yeah. like the beginning we're going to go way back now this is going to be like a deep dive i think yeah so in the 1700s this is how far back we're going okay <laughs> um in the united states cities established uh, they were called El- elms houses elms have
1: you ever heard Either this were elms or alms. I, alms I can't remember
0: i'm going with alms
1: know. but i'm not
0: 100% okay alms houses i'll I'll trust you because <laughs> i have literally no idea <laughs> um so the these houses were devoted to the sick um and it was generally they were located in larger towns so you had to like go to the larger town to get care. Otherwise, you really didn't have a lot of options. Just the doctor who would come to your house. They were really for the poor. Um, And that's why they were mainly run by clergy because they were really kind of like an all-encompassing, like if you don't have a place to stay, you can stay here. If you don't have food, you can eat here. If you need care, you you can get care here.
1: Yeah. And it's kind of foreshadowing because look at the types of hospitals we see today. Not that they necessarily do this custodial care to the poor and destitute strictly. But you see a lot of these religious hospitals, and that was their basis. And it still forms the basis of a lot of places today.
0: Definitely. I mean, especially, I don't know what it's like in Cleveland, but here in New York, I mean, the second we get like some freezing rain or something, our ER is full because we have people out on the street who need, you know, shelter and they need a meal.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah.
0: Okay, wait. So I found this really interesting. Ben Franklin... (laughs) Was He's just all over the place in history. So he was instrumental in founding um, the Pennsylvania Hospital in 1751, which was like the nation's first institution to treat medical conditions, which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I actually, that, that was one of the things, the few things that I did know. Uh, uh-huh. I, did, I did a rotation there. That hospital's still open. Um, what? Yeah, and they have, uh, so, you know, while I was on rotation, they're just kind of like, kind of took a tour with one of the residents and they still have like the historic section of the hospital open. I mean, it is still functioning, but now it's mostly offices, but they do have some patient care areas in there and they have some of the old like libraries. And uh, I think I remember when I was on infectious disease, we rounded in one of the like original libraries. I was like, Whoa.
0: Wow, that's really cool. Oh my God. So in New York, like our hospitals are also very old, like Bellevue, you know, it was like crazy. Um, One of the hospitals I used to work for, uh, it used to be called St. Luke's now. So it was a Catholic hospital. It's changed since then. Um, But it has this beautiful like cathedral inside of it. Like this, it's like a church inside the hospital with stained glass windows. I mean, you could have a whole service. It's huge. Um, And they still have these like, operating theaters and on the premises, I've tried to find them and like, well, I found them. I've tried to go in them uh, and they like have like security. They're oh. like, you can't, you can't, ma'am, get out. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. You're weird. Go away. Yeah. Um, but anyway, but they, it's there. It's still, and it's in like the big circle. It's like a big stone building, like off, wow. uh, like on the hospital campus. It's crazy. So for... For most of the 19th century, um, the socially marginalized or the poor um, were the only ones really to see, receive medical care in institutions, and and obviously we're talking about United States. You know, we're not going to go into other countries yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um. But like when a middle or upper class person fell ill, their families would nurse them at home. Uh. They would have a doctor come to do private duty care, and even surgery was routinely performed at the patient's home. So it was it was mainly for people people who didn't have homes or couldn't afford the care. So that's how, that's how it started. There's two branches of hospitals early on, right? One is the Protestant hospitals and one is the Catholic hospitals. Uh, yeah. And I thought yeah. that was funny that it yeah. came here. <laughs> <laughs> They brought it. They brought it with them. Okay, oh, yeah. <laughs> Over the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So privately supported voluntary hospitals were products of the Protestant efforts for the poor. They were mostly managed by lay trustees and they were funded by public donations. Um, the Protestant churches reentered the health field around the 19th century um, and especially with... Um, the establishment, like the hierarchy would generally be uh, this order of women, which they called deaconesses, which had dedicated themselves to nursing services. Again, it's it's mostly nursing run, which is yeah. so interesting to me. Um, and that became... A model. Um, I just said that we're doing only American history, but just a side note, a statistic that I found yes. really interesting was um, within a half a of century of, of that model, there was 5,000 deaconesses in Europe. So they were all wow. nurses just like running all of those hospitals. So that's pretty huh. cool. Wow. So we talked about the Protestants. So the Catholic sisters and brothers were the owners um, and administrators of the Catholic institutions, and they were mostly nurses as well. They didn't have as big of a donor base as the Protestants, so they relied primarily on fundraising efforts and actually charged some patient fees. In the 1840s, the Catholics in Philadelphia, a lot of this is in Philly, which is pretty cool, Yeah, um, founded two hospitals for Irish and German Catholics. Um, And then by the 1900s, the Catholics had set up Uh, hospitals in most major cities. By the 1920s, they were serving... Everybody in the neighborhood, um, because when they first started, they were actually only serving Catholics. It was like, if oh. you were Catholic, you go to the Catholic hospital. If you're Protestant, you go there. So, but by the 20s, they were like, okay, it, whoever, you can come here. Yeah. In the early 1900s, around that time, um, most of the hospitals were operated by the city, state, federal agency, by churches, standalone, non-for-profits, and for-profit enterprises. Um But the church-run ones were dominating, basically. Um, There was, by 1915, there was 541 Catholic-run hospitals. So the Catholic hospitals were mostly staffed by Catholic orders of nuns and nursing students um, until the population of nuns dropped sharply after the 1960s, which is just, I wonder why. Yeah. 1960s. That's I would an not interesting have called that. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe the nurses were like or the nuns and the nurses were like, it looks like more fun to be a hippie. I don't know. <laughs> Something really interesting about the Catholic hospitals also, maybe this is why they left in the 60s, they were staffed primarily by unpaid nuns. They didn't pay them, which now, I mean, I've worked with nuns who are nurses in Michigan. Um, I was actually trained by one uh, and she was a great nurse, but they pay them now, right? (laughs) (laughs) You're allowed to have a job. (laughs) So by the 1920s, hospitals developed um, into a place where illness might be treated or even cured, as opposed to a place where you might just go to die, really. Yeah. Yeah. And non-for-profit hospitals at this time began reducing their traditional charitable roles in favor of creating like a prestigious institution, which was more attractive to like an upper middle class clientele um, so that they could get more money. Public hospitals operated with um, the commitment to treat the poor. Um, They continued to do this, but as a consequence, they obviously didn't raise that much money. So they had to brainstorm basically. So they needed to get these people who were at home with their private doctor having surgery, they needed to get them into the hospital to supplement their, their income basically. So physicians started to donate their time and, um, the costs for nurses and staff tend to be pretty low. Um, and for the first time, hospitals required significant funds um, because then doctors and surgeons started to be paid uh, like a fair wage and nursing. Uh, nurses started to push to be professionalized and, and legitimized um, in their profession, which is something I think in the future I'll have to do a history of nursing episode also. Because um, there was in the beginning the nurse was like a helper, you know, and it was yeah. just like someone to, to help out and to be overseen by a doctor. Um, but around this time, they started to get diploma degrees and started to be recognized as a, as a legitimate profession
1: yeah, and it's around this time that, a, I start to get lost because there's like just a dearth of information,
0: right. <laughs> and right. then,
1: um, I know that this is around the time when the Flexner report came out, which is this big national report that uh, was released that was aiming to standardize like medical education. Um, and I, you know it I guess it kind of fits that this is also around the time that physicians started getting paid. Right. Um, Because they were like, well, if you're going to make us meet these standards, then, you know, we want to be compensated Mm -hmm. for all these things that we have to do that normally maybe we wouldn't have.
0: Sure. So many urban public hospitals tried to, like, recast themselves. Basically what you're saying, they tried to recast themselves um, as, like, a highly regarded institution. um, And then they started to become affiliated with universities and different medical schools, like you pointed out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then in 1929, the Great Depression happened. Uh, here we go. <laughs> so everything was going great. And then the goddamn Great Depression happened. <laughs> um,. So, and I mean something that I'm sure is not a surprise to anyone. Anytime you have some kind of great economic depression, the census at the hospitals nationwide goes up. And that's exactly what happened here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So in 1929, the Great Depression represented a huge challenge to hospitals. Um, They were very busy during all of the 1930s. Um, In one statistic I found... Between 1929 and 1930, public hospitals saw an increase of 21% in patient load with an average occupancy rate of 90% in uh, 1993. So, or 1993, (laughs) 1930. I'm sure 1993 was a better year. Maybe. (laughs) We were booming (laughs) economically, maybe. Clinton. Oh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and then also it coincided with a surge of patient demand that occurred after World War II, so it was like two, it was like a double whammy, yeah. Um, which is kind of rough too. And like you said, now you have people coming home from the war and they don't have limbs and or God knows what PTSD before they knew what that was
1: (laughs) yeah they just had a different name for it back then yeah what did they call it at that time shell shock
0: yeah 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 (laughs) I remember my grandma saying that about her father like yeah he just had shell shock you know like everybody had it and I was just like yeah that's trauma right you know that right (laughs) it's like really i mean
1: everyone probably did have it but that's not good
0: yeah <laughs> she just said it like it was like no big deal you know yeah <laughs> yeah he just starts screaming in the middle of the night sometimes oh, it's geez. fine yeah no no that he didn't but okay <laughs> no. um Okay. So even though, like I mentioned before, federal, state, and local governments gave some support to hospitals, it was mainly the clergy, right? But now because of the war and because of this economic uncertainty, um, the government kind of got more involved um, and they started actually adding like a lot of money into this infrastructure. Um, So in 1947, the Hill-Burton Act provided funds for the construction and expansion of community hospitals because we had these massive hospitals in these big cities, but we didn't have any like local community hospitals. And then the National Institutes of Health expanded in the 1950s and 1960s when things started to get back on track a little bit. And that stimulated both for-profit and non-for-profit research. Um, so in the 1950s, you know, everybody's buying washing machines and business is booming. Things are looking yeah. great, right? <laughs> um so the future of city hospitals seemed great. Um, and even they still had the same issues that we have now, persistent lack of funds, but they were well-staffed. They were affiliated with medical and nursing schools at this time. So our both of our roles were professional and legitimate. So things were pretty good. Yeah. Um, so this led actually to rising public expectations for both nursing and doctors. There were like these reformers. uh, There was... People who came in and said, "Now, now that things are so great, and you're affiliated with these academic institutions, now we want to make sure that things are safe, and we want we want the especially the nursing education to represent that." So there was a push for like a reorganization, basically, um, of nursing education. So it began to move from like a three year hospital based diploma program to like a bachelor's degree, a four year um, bachelor's degree. Which, I mean, that took a really long. Time again, this is a whole nother tangent. Um, I mean, most people back then they got their associate's degree, or but there was a push to get away from the diploma. That's when you start seeing nurses and their education being, um, you know, pushed to the forefront, saying, like, "We, we actually need nurses who are highly skilled. Um, but I mean, I worked with nurses, especially when I was new. I worked with nurses who they did the diploma route um, or the, yeah, the diploma route in the hospital. So they would live at the hospital for like Uh two or three years and they would train, they lived on the premises, they would feed them, house them, give them their skirt and their tights for free and they would work there and they worked long grueling hours it was awful and there was a lot of bullying and you know that kind of thing and then um by the end of it they would give you the diploma and they said okay now you're a nurse. <laughs> oh. Um okay. So like I mentioned before the 60s uh things were booming um but then it did reveal people who needed care and weren't getting care. There were people in both uh, urban areas and the rural poor alike that were not getting um, access to care. And this was seen as kind of like a slight, you know, America, USA, we're supposed to be number one. The economy is booming. And then we have these people, especially veterans who are getting this really terrible care, um, so in 1965 and i get that it's like we're doing the hospital this is why this this episode was so difficult because we're doing the history of hospital administration and i'm i'm about to tell you about linda b johnson right because it does <laughs> yeah. all tie together it all goes it really hand does, in yeah. hand yeah so it's like so bear with me stay with me on this it <laughs> it, it goes together i promise <laughs> okay so in 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson um, declared a war on poverty. I don't think we've won that yet. Um, yeah, he no. said, uh, you know, in our great society, we sh- we basically shouldn't have this issue, and we're going to tackle it. So Congress enacted Medicare, Medicaid to provide some access to care for the poor and for the elderly, um, and these government. Programs were enabled so that patients could apply to hospitals of their choosing. And it provided money, like I said, to care for um, not just the poor, but also the aged, which was a new concept too. And then, so the churches didn't have to take care of that anymore. The government was going to supplement that.
1: Makes sense on paper.
0: Makes sense on paper. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good idea in theory. Yeah. (laughs) And now I have to do prior authorizations for every single medication (laughs) that my patient gets. Yeah. (laughs) So, in 1970, the American Hospital Association listed 7,000 hospitals in the United States, um, and that was up from 247 in 1960. So, I mean, it increased exponentially in just 10 years, yeah, um, because of this. However, the number of beds in federal, psych, tuberculosis, long-term care facilities declined. Um, So, it was like, Everybody's in the hospital now. It was like, nobody's in the hospital yeah. and now. Everybody's in the hospital. <laughs> so community hospitals increased their bed capacity by 32%. Um, and these non-federal short-term care institutions that were controlled by community leaders were linked to uh, the community's physicians to meet the individual community needs. And that represented 82% of all hospitals. It contained over half of all hospital beds and had uh 92% of all admissions which is crazy. Yeah. By this point the cost of uh hospital care now grew even faster. And that's that's something I saw in this issue over and over again every time mm-hmm. you know they try to make a change or something now the uh, hospital costs go up a lot faster than anything else. The hospital costs are always rising faster than anything else is rising. So Medicare, you know, of course it the costs surpassed the projections right off the bat. <laughs> they okay. said it's going to yeah. cost, you know, this and it, and it didn't. So, okay, in 1965, for example, Medicare costs were projected to be 3.1 billion. 5 years later, they reached 5.8 billion, an <laughs> increase of 87%. So, they were wrong. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a big mess. Yeah, oops. Yeah. And and this <laughs> kills me to be honest with you because this is something that um in various jobs that I've had, where you have some accountant and some person making a budget, and they say they've never worked in you know with this patient population or anything, and they'll say on paper, "Oh, it's it's gonna it should cost this," and then if their estimate is wrong, it's like you're doing something wrong, and you need to do. And it's <laughs> like, well, maybe you're wrong, actually. <laughs> maybe yeah. your guess is wrong. <laughs> Okay, so this is really important. So the increase of eighty seven percent, right in in these five years, um, less than ten percent of that could be linked to an expanded utilization. twenty three percent, Uh, was linked to economic inflation. Okay, so that makes sense. But the remaining two-thirds, it really led... It was was generally because of massive expansions in hospital payroll and non-payroll expenses, including quote-unquote profits, which is interesting, especially when we're talking about non-for-profit hospitals, right? Yeah. The average, the daily patient care average doubled between 1966 and 1976. And and I think it's important at this point to note too, when we're talking about Medicaid, Medicare coming into the hospital, I mean, anybody who's worked for one of these hospitals that has a lot of these patients can understand that the second this government stuff entered the hospital, there's now all this extra regulation, right? Because the government is paying for yeah. these patients, right? so it, it it added a lot of bureaucracy to it. So now these hospital administrators are needed to come in and sort of regulate this stuff and not necessarily that's not necessarily a doctor or a nurse role. So I think really, this is where we first start to see, these like non-medical people really at a at a higher rate they were always slightly involved but at a higher rate it was when Medicare Medicaid came in and then you really start to see them getting hired
1: yeah I mean there's so much money involved and at the same time so much red tape you've basically built an entirely separate job.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: And you see this not just with administrators, but like there's whole billing departments now.
0: Exactly. I mean, (laughs) I mean, it's more than even one job. It's more than even one department at this point now. I mean, it's just, it's absurd. I mean, some of the stuff, you know, (laughs) we had a whole team one time uh, at my hospital, the lean team. Oh, yeah. Do you have this at your hospital?
1: I don't think that's what they call it, but it's, it's, that It's yeah.
0: like someone who's never seen a patient in their life and they come and observe you and they come and observe your department and they go through everything. And at the end, they they say, I mean, what they told us was, oh, you're triaging the patients incorrectly, uh, you know, because we would call them in, take their vitals, you know, etc., send them back out to the waiting room. They would wait till the doctor was ready to call them, right? And they they said, yeah. no, 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 no. You need to vital them in the room. You need to do it this way. It's more efficient. It caused chaos because we didn't have enough space. It, give us Give us a proper clinic yeah. and we could do that, right? We don't have any space. The doctor yeah. has one room, like... <laughs>
1: <laughs> I got into an argument with my brother about something like this because he, you know, he's not in healthcare. He uh, he does a lot of IT. And he, uh-huh. and so he was talking about like, oh, well, you need to move these patients through faster, you know, to meet these other demands. And what it basically boiled down to was, well, he, you know, in the factory, they have these widgets. And I was like, no, 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 no. no, no, no. no,
0: no. These are human beings. <laughs> I, st-
1: I was like, you got to stop <laughs> right there. I was, like, I was like, these are people. Yeah. They're not widgets. Yeah. You, you can't push them through, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and then expect the same quality control. You yeah. Because every, everyone's different. You're not making the same part. Right.
0: Exactly. And, and these patients can be so complicated. And sometimes they come in and they have social issues or they have cancer. They need someone to talk to. Sometimes I've had patients just sit and they just need to cry, you know? And we yeah. should give them that time to do that, to grieve their health sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it's like instead we're shuffling them from room to room, it's a terrible feeling. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's atrocious. And I see it in clinic. I see it in the inpatient setting. Not that I'm shuffling them from room to room in the inpatient setting, right? right. you know, I just feel like I can't spend that much time with them in the room. And it is true what we tell the medical students, like, you know, we only gave you this many patients. So unfortunately you're the one who gets to spend the most time with the patient, even though you have the least amount of information. Right. Right. It's really frustrating.
0: Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's frustrating from a nursing standpoint, too, because, you know, I, especially before I started talking to doctors more, from an outsider's point of view, if you know nothing about doctors... What you could believe as a nurse is like the doctors don't want to see patients, you know, in inpatient side, because the patient will say to you, I didn't see, I saw my doctor came and rounded on me at six o'clock in the morning and I haven't seen a doctor since, you know, and you go kind of like, well, what the hell is going on here? Why, you know? And then you look and then you really ask and you look at these caseloads and and the doctor the covering, you know, PGY2 has like 40 patients, you know what I mean? And I'm like, oh my God, this is too much.
1: Yeah, it gets really bad at night. Oh my God. I I remember when I was an intern, it was like, oh, this patient's family's here because I got off work. And I'm like, I have never actually seen this patient. I'm covering for them. I know what's going on with them. Oh
0: yeah, definitely. I mean.
1: And I'm supposed to have like this personal conversation. I'm like, this feels really. uh."
0: Yeah, that was me. I'm the one who's like, (laughs) hey, the the family's here after work at 8 p.m. right when the night team shows up and doesn't know this patient at all, basically. It wants a complete update, you know. I'm like, uh, sorry, guys. If I can, just a word of advice to any new nurses, if you're listening, if if you can, direct them to the day team and and make it. And it is, it's true. It is in their best interest, and and tell them that you know it's it. Hey, the the attending who is managing you. This is a, a way off topic, but just just as some advice. Just just say the attending that's managing you uh, is here in the morning, and you can call this number, and and that's the best person with the most information. You know.
1: Yeah. I, I And I don't want to take this too far off, but that's pretty much the same advice I have for residents who are recovering right. overnight. I mean, I mean, if push comes to shove and you're not super swamped, you know, if they just want to look at an x-ray with you, sure, you can just run sure. down and do it. But I mean, like still direct them to be like, you know, the day team is the one who's most involved with the right. patient. I'm here covering, you know, XYZ patients, but here's what I know. Do what you can, but
0: yeah, you know, I mean,
1: don't feel like you have to like get to know the Patient yeah,
0: exactly. Which I think, I, I think a lot of interns, I see that it's like the fear of death is, you know, in their eye. They're, they're like, they don't know what to say sometimes. Yeah. Um, okay. So back, back. Here we go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so... So basically, like I said, Medicare and Medicaid came in, and then there was a bunch of these like structural changes, and then these like critically underfunded public hospitals. They they had to make a lot of changes if they were gonna survive and if they were gonna get reimbursement and and payment from Medicare, and Medicaid. So there was a variety of changes and proposals in the early 1970s. And this involved possibly, you know, they talked about severing partially or wholly the public hospital from direct control by the local government or by municipalities Um, because it it was a lot. It was a lot for them, a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape. So the New York public hospitals came under control of a public benefit corporation. Um, And then in Denver, the public hospitals merged with like uh, a public health system to create Uh, like a a bigger, a broader healthcare system. So this brings us up. We're almost to the 80s, okay? (laughs) And we're on page four of 13. (laughs) That's the 80s, okay? There's a lot of... Key factors in this. There's a lot. There's a lot of different things that molded what we have today, and one of them is uh, the number of physicians in the United States. It grew 150 percent between 1975 and 2010, and um, it roughly kept up with the population growth. But the number of healthcare administrators increased 3,200 percent for the same time period. People who were advocating for this uh, hospital administrator position, they were saying that the growing number of administrators is necessary um, to keep pace with the drastic changes in healthcare delivery during that time period, and it was. It's also important to note that the drive uh, in change was also technology-based, right? I mean, the systems are yeah. getting more complicated. I mean, our patients gradually start to get more complicated. I mean, the whole, the whole structure kind of evolved.
1: Big time. And it's, it's really interesting because as the available technology changes, the things that we're able to do for the patients changes. Because right. it used to be, you know, if someone came with chest pain and it was like, I don't know, 1950 or something, it was like, okay, here's like three things mm-hmm. you can do. And now we have like all these diagnostic tests, we have cardiac cath, we have all these medications. It's just like, we have so right. much, um, right? and then, you know, so I kind of get it from like a administrative standpoint where you have like these, these different diagnostic tests and scans and, you know, direct interventions that, you know, someone's got to coordinate. Right.
0: It. Right. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, like. Like we said at the beginning of this, the hospital basically went from mm-hmm. somewhere that you just went to die, basically, and yeah. to now most people in the community, including the rich and upper class, are going there for care and 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 even to be treated and discharged. Um, and obviously, the counterpoint for you know for having a hospital administrator is uh, a lot of the critics have said that the army of administrators, I love this quote, the army of administrators (laughs) does little to relieve the documentation burden on clinicians while creating layers of high-salaried bureaucratic bloat in healthcare organization. Amen. I love it.
1: Yeah, I know. I just said on the one hand, like, quote, unquote, I get it. But this quote, it it just... It, it embodies what I think almost all of us see um, on our day to day, you know, work. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, when I when we were talking about this on Instagram, I had one, I had one doctor who is an attending, is a critical care attending uh, that I'm friends with, um, and he was the only person who who kind of made an argument of. You know, well, these hospital administrators—they guide the healthcare system, and the healthcare system won't make what it, you know, ultimately makes to serve the patients if if they don't make these tremendous salaries. It attracts the best and the brightest, was sort of the um, argument, and and my re- retali you know, retort was just sort of, but do you think that he deserves? that much more than you do? Does he, does he deserve, you know, 75, 50, 50%, 75% more than what you make when you're actually seeing patients? I mean, I don't believe that. That's just my opinion. So in the seventies, healthcare uh, was a field dominated by small business, um, which is obviously now changed quite a bit. Um, At that time, many physicians were solo practitioners, um, and they had fairly minimal administrative help. I mean, they were their own bosses. I mean, if you talk to some of these old docs, it's like the golden era of physicians, right? They were just killing it. <laughs> but after the 1970s, this is no longer the case uh, because of the huge changes of regulation and public reporting requirements. Um and in the '70s, this is also when you start to see the hospital as like an open workshop where you see doctors bring their patients um, they worked independent of the hospital, but then they would bring if their patient was admitted, they would work you know alongside the hospital. Um, so I guess what it looks like to me is, you know, at the beginning, the nurses, clergy, etc., were sort of running the show, right? Doctors were more yeah. so in the houses, people's houses of the upper middle class, upper class who could pay. Um, And then you start to see in like the 70s, you start to see physicians opening their own practices, running them independently, but now they have to start coordinating more with the hospitals, I guess, because if they're, like we're saying, if the patients admitted now they have to, they have to work alongside the hospital.
1: Yeah. It's like they're kind of borrowing their staff.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That started there, but it leads us up to today where like 50% of physicians are employed by hospital systems and work in large specialty groups um, and they report to administrators. So it went from zero to, you know, 50%, which is now. <laughs> there has been a conscious effort in healthcare systems to encourage physicians to take leading roles. Uh, and I, I don't know if you've seen this. I've definitely seen this. We have committees. We have uh, teams who they, they have meetings. And a lot of our attendings are on these boards where they do make decisions. Um, is that true where you're at?
1: Yeah, I've definitely... I mean, that's definitely true where I'm at, and I've noticed a push in, like, different physician discussion groups for more representation of, like, actively mm-hmm. practicing physicians to get into these right, administrative right. roles part-time.
0: Yeah. I think that is a really good point to make also, is an actively practicing doctor, medical doctor, yeah. right? Because. I, I've seen that at some of these large hospital systems here in New York, where it is a doctor who's ultimately in charge, but this person has not seen a patient in 20 years, probably. Yeah.
1: And then you, you really, not in every case, but in many cases, you start to see the fallout from that. You know, it's basically anyone in a command authority position who is no longer in touch with their troops. It's like, right. <laughs> it's like, I'm making right. these decisions, yeah. but I have no idea what's going on on the ground.
0: Right. Yeah. And I mean, we see that in just like some of the crazy decisions that get made on like, you know, it's like they just flip a switch one day and say, okay, we're moving this unit to this unit. And it's like, why? And with what planning? And does the medication refrigerator even work over in that unit? We don't know. Just do it, you know. (laughs) Make
1: make the thing happen. (laughs)
0: Okay. So this takes us up to the 80s and 90s. So in the 1980s, there was a huge growth for For-profit hospital networks, resulting in increased vulnerability of smaller non-for-profit institutions. More than six hundred community hospitals closed during this time. Um, And it was also at this time that both for-profit and non-for-profit institutions began forming larger hospital systems. So this is when we start seeing these like giant corporations basically forming, which you know was a huge change in, in the hospital arena. And and. During this time, uh, cost containment was like the name of the game, basically. Um, The balance of the power in these institutions shifted from caregivers to the organized purchasers of care, where Medicaid and Medicare became a huge influence in all hospitals. So, I mean, here's, I guess, where we really start to see, you know, we saw... The increase of hospital administration coming in in the seventies when uh, Medicare Medicaid gets introduced, and in the, then in the nineties we start to see these hospitals failing. So they're banding together. They're making these large hospital systems, uh, and then you see a lot of government um, interference, mm-hmm. really, with patient care, and uh, and and then and then you kind of see these administrators getting even more more so. Um, you know, controlling controlling the hospital.
1: People complain a lot about oh, Medicaid and Medicare. But Sure. It, I think you're about to go in this actually. Like the insurance companies are doing the exact same thing where they put up all this red tape and they're like, mm-hmm. oh, no, you can only do this, you can't do this. And you know, it's just it instead of it being a legal issue, it's a funding issue.
0: Exactly. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Because yeah, because uh, that's always the argument uh, when we I just recorded an episode um, about capitalism yeah. basically in healthcare. And uh, I mean, that, that's always the argument is that, oh, it's going to introduce all this red tape and yeah. Who's to say that blue cross blue shield is not doing the exact same thing. Cause yeah. they are, I mean, <laughs> it's like any patient who's <laughs> had are. Their,
1: their medications rejected, their MRI turned down any, any doctor mm-hmm. who's had to do a peer to peer Oh my god. <laughs> like you're I know seeing it I know. right now. <laughs> and it, it's it is oh my not god. just, in many yeah. cases. I have and it, this is just, you know, anecdotal, but I have found that our state Medicaid has been more permissive than some of our private insurers. I'm um, just like Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. It's absolutely yeah. crazy. I mean, I just got it took me a month um to get a prescription for Santal for my foot. That I and I have great insurance. I have great insurance and uh, I never have a copay. That's like part of my insurance. Never. I've never once paid a copay. Um, And they, it took me a month to get it. It's just like (sighs) crazy. It's crazy. So, in the private sector, like you were saying, like in the private sector, insurance companies began to take a more active role in managing hospital costs. So, to your point, Yes, Medicare, Medicaid, they interfere. So do these massive insurance companies too. Um, then in 1987, the Balanced Budget Act decreased Medicare payments to hospitals by $115 billion over five years. I don't understand how they yeah. could do that. <laughs> they were just like, you don't need this. Yoink. Um, in September... 2014, the United States was reported to spend roughly $218 billion per year on hospital administration costs, uh, which is equivalent to 1.43% of the total US economy. They're Sorry. taking like. <laughs> Yeah. One and a half percent of our entire economy. This is what, I guess that's what I should have said to that doctor who said, you know, well, they deserve that massive salary. Do they deserve one and a half percent of our economy? (laughs) Hospital administration has grown as a percent of the U.S. economy from 0.9% in 2002. Like we just said, 1.43% in 2012. So it's growing is is the point of that too. It's, I mean, it's, it massively growing. I mean... <laughs> okay. And so I guess this is just comparing like different countries and how they, they deal with it. So they allocate... Different hospitals uh, in 11 different countries showed to allocate approximately twelve percent of their budget towards administrative costs. Um, in the United States, hospitals spend around twenty five percent on administrative costs. So right there we have a disparity, right? and and I'm sure if you listen to the other episodes you know too that we also have worse yep. care. so. None of this makes sense. <laughs> Although many colleges and universities are offering a bachelor's degree in healthcare administration or human resources, master's degrees are considered a standard credential for most of the health administrators in the U.S. Um, and that is, if if you saw the infographic that I did with the CEO yeah. salaries, I because I'm petty <laughs> as fuck, I put in like their uh, education, and one of them had a BSN. She's yeah. a nurse, and she's making these big millions. I mean, other, <laughs> you know, there's are bachelor's degrees, some of them, and, and some of them are master's, and some of them have doctorates, but, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. and I want to tie that back to what we were just talking about with, you know, the higher mu- amount spent on healthcare in general, but on administrative salaries, but we have worse outcomes. And we're sitting there, and we're like, you know, do you really think you deserve that salary? Well, you know, if we were getting better outcomes compared to other places, I think right. you, could, you could try and pitch it. You could argue yeah, you, it. You yeah, could argue it. There's no pitching yeah. it now because other places, the administration is right. getting paid less, substantially less. Right. And their outcomes are better. Like, right.
0: come on. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't have a leg to stand on. Yeah. You're like yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> you're one leg. Yeah. You're on a knee scooter. <laughs> um, Okay, so now let's talk about the fun stuff. Let's talk about pay. Here we go. I know. All right. I'm going to (laughs) get mad. Get ready. Here we go. (laughs) I'm about to get angry. Okay. Um... So the actual pay of hospital administrators does depend on their location. It depends on the size of the facility and the scope of his or her responsibilities. Um, The Bureau of Labor Statistics noted the median annual salary for all medical and health services managers, so all of them together, was $84,000 in 2010. This is important, and and this is a really important um, note that I want to make. And I, I think I've mentioned this in the past. It's fun to talk about the most egregious. It's fun to talk about the people making $25 million, $12 million. It's fun to talk about that. But there's a lot more bloat within the top of these uh, hospitals. There's a lot of administrative rules. And these people might not be making $10 million. Yeah. You know, they might be making five, 500000 but there's 10 of them. Yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? <laughs> so that's why I think this uh statistic it might seem a little actually low when we're talking about you know a hospital CEO but we're not talking about the president of NYU's salary you know we're talking about everybody and an 84 thousand you know maybe in a bigger city like Chicago or la it might not go quite as far but if you're making eighty-four thousand and you live in my hometown, you're yeah. doing great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so um, it, it depends on the location. Obviously, it's not just the CEOs, right? So I want to just name some of the positions. Um, there is. People like a chief executive officer, chief financial officers, chief medical or nursing officers, uh, chief information officers, healthcare administration, and um, also encompasses leadership roles in patient care, which is quality assurance or legal, communication, public health. I mean, it's, it could go on and on and on. It's, it's, it's so yeah, I much. Mean it, it,
1: and obviously, we are going to peg some CEOs, but like you said, this, this goes... So much deeper. We shouldn't just peg one person because so many more culprits.
0: Ultimately, it's more than one person. Um, And I do... Some people say, you know, you can't blame that person. I do blame that person at the top. I do. I definitely (laughs) do. But it's not just that person the whole the whole thing needs to be completely overhauled yeah. it makes no sense so i mean obviously anybody who's listening to this you and me have all felt this right what does this do when you have been i mean as a physician for you how does it feel to have this hospital oversight this administrative oversight into your care
1: oh man where do i start <laughs> <laughs> It's it's it super sucks. Like, I mean, we've already talked about some examples where, you know, I'm having to fight off administration either at my hospital or, you know, above me through insurance companies or whatever.
0: I guess I, I would just wonder, like, because I do hear doctors talking about kind of the good old days, like the older doctors, like the ones who they had their own patients, they did. Um, procedures in their own offices, then they would come and they would round in the hospital, but they did not work directly for the hospital, right they were making good salaries they had control complete control over what they did um, I mean, does that as a new doctor does that discourage you that you might have to work for someone you might have to work for a hospital system it's
1: very discouraging from like a, you know thinking about opening a private practice standpoint, and that's being reflected you know in the data right now, uh, private practices mm-hmm. are just drying up like crazy. Um, mm-hmm. and you know,
0: why, why is that? So
1: it, it wasn't immediately clear to me, but you know, talking to some other people who recently closed their practices, um, a lot of what you're seeing is hospitals are getting control of the patient base. Um, so mm-hmm. for example, uh, someone in my family does interventional cardiology. And he's had, he's had this private practice for years and years and years and years, Mm -hmm. you know, opened it in the nineties or something. Um, And he's had agreements with hospitals in the city. He hasn't, he's never left the city. Um, And all of a sudden one of the big hospitals that he had had an agreement with where, you know, he would staff his patients there if they were admitted. um, They told him we're revoking your privileges for no other reason than we're turfing these patients to our cardiologists. Um, So they're basically like taking his, and what they've been doing even before they formalized it is they were taking his patients who are admitted. And when the hospitalist team would discharge him, they were told that they have to make referrals to that hospital's cardiologist and not back to the cardiologist who they're already established with.
0: So they're just like cutting him out basically. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we see this here too. I'm seeing it everywhere. Uh, It's like, you don't hear when when the residents are graduating and they're in internal medicine, you don't hear them say, Oh, I'm going to go open an office. Exactly. That's not a thing anymore. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That is rapidly disappearing.
0: Yeah. That's pretty sad because yeah. we need, we need those doctors. We really need them.
1: Anytime you have to kind of submit your practice to a larger organization, you use a lot, you, uh, you lose a lot of your autonomy. Right. Um, you know, like, I've kind of carved out my own autonomy, even as like a resident. Um, mm-hmm. That's because my program has given me room to do that. Right. Um, like, you know, I can, I can communicate with patients after hours and I can, I can communicate with insurance companies and do this and do that in most ways that I want to, but within a framework. Um, but some places like you're not even allowed to do those things. Right. You know? uh, right. Otherwise you're breaking some kind of rule and someone's
0: going to come Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, nursing has the same problem. Like if you talk to... Uh, I have a very close friend whose mom uh, was a nurse back... She's a diploma nurse, actually. She was a, a nurse in the 70s. She had the glass bottle IVs and the whole thing. And she <laughs> yeah. just can tell you some stories, man. Oh my God. But um, she was an ICU nurse for a lot of years back when you could retire at the bedside right which is yeah. really it's becoming something you really can't do anymore um i mean some people still do it i can't i don't know how but um but she basically saw the transition that's sort of similar i mean obviously we all you know nurses we worked in hospitals we always did have someone kind of overseeing us that you know that was a problem within nursing too that's a whole other thing but The point is that you talk to those older nurses, they did have time with their patients. They did have time to be caregivers, to sit down and and say, you know, is there anything you need or or talk, just talk to the person. Now you don't have that time. I mean, yeah. you, you are squeezed for every minute. And when you, when you do have any time at all, you have to be documenting, you know, you're on Epic or something.
1: Just sitting and talking with the patient is so important. This is something I've realized during residency,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: you don't get paid for it.
0: Right. <laughs> the current exactly. system is
1: not structured for that whatsoever. Exactly. I mean, there was, there was a recent change in the way that clinic billing is done where it can be time-based. So we'll see if that pans out. They just changed that in March or something.
0: Oh, I didn't realize that. It's interesting. Yeah, it's
1: like brand new. Uh, okay. But yeah, Like otherwise, like this whole fee-for-service model, you know, was brought in with good intentions, but then, you know, it, it's fee-for-service. And so that's why you see all these procedures getting a big bucks. Right. And primary care is kind of left out. And then mm-hmm. then now you wonder why primary care shortage. It's like, well.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's really sad. And then I I hate seeing from a patient point of view, I have even friends like I, you know, I have a friend who had uh, an early form of cancer, uh, and she is fine now, thank God. But uh she felt like that was the doctors and nurses not caring about her. That's how she felt. She felt like nobody comes to check on me. No one comes to visit me. I'm seeing a different doctor every time. There's no consistency. There's no communication from the nurses. Um, and it's difficult to justify that, you know, even though we are doing our best and we are dying trying, yeah. right? We we are sweating <laughs> and running and not peeing and not eating and And we still are a disappointment because we just, we cannot serve our patients correctly under this model. Um, Okay, so I guess this leads us into the next point, which is doctor and nurse burnout uh, related to hospital administration. So um, the results of a 2018 survey of uh, U.S. physicians by the Physician Foundation, uh, I'm sure it doesn't surprise anyone. Uh, The survey found alarming levels of professional dissatisfaction, burnout, pessimism about the future of medicine, Um, for future uh, among respondent physicians. Um, And it appears that much of that pessimism is directed toward the hospital itself and its leaders. Um, 46% of survey respondents um, viewed the relationship between physicians and hospitals as mostly negative or adversarial, which is like (laughs) your enemy, basically. Um one doctor, I, I was reading, you know, these kind of long blogs about doctors who are, you know, there's doctors on Reddit and there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of, a- actually, there's a lot of academic um, papers on this topic too. And one quote that I, I pulled that kind of summarized it for me um, said, uh, I loved medicine. It was good for my soul. Uh, but medicine left me. Doctors uh, give up most their power and large corporations without an ethical foundation and no God, but money took over. I don't know about the God part in general. (laughs) I'm not the most religious person, but uh, I mean, that sort of summarizes it for me. Like, yeah, I mean, it just, it leaves you empty. You get into this role because you want to help and you just feel like you're actually doing the opposite
1: yeah and uh, you know in these different position discussion groups you know on facebook on reddit wherever mm-hmm. that's exactly what i'm seeing people talk about is right and a lot of people are actively either leaving the bedside entirely or leaving you know their main practice
0: and, you know, so like we mentioned before, there are, there, there is opportunity for some doctors. Like I know, uh, Dr. Jim Fulmer, he's the doctor's war game on Instagram. If you ever check him oh, out, yeah. he's like yeah. the best. I love him. <laughs> um, and you know, he's, he's a really experienced doctor, uh, in, in a, in a thriving hospital in Florida. Um, and, and he said, you know, he's had the opportunity to be a, a, an administrator, um, and that I think generally, a lot of the people in these committees, they're not like evil people, right? I mean, they're right. just regular people. And yeah. you do have to make budget cuts. A, for, a for-profit system, you do. You have to think about the bottom line. You have to think about the profit, right?
1: Yeah. Because no, no one's out there to cover your shortfall
0: exactly yeah exactly so i mean they have to make it work so i guess it's important to point out that there are people even within my own systems i've seen they are some people are really out there trying for you know to make it better for for the people at the bedside and for the patient and it just to me looks like they can they can't do it yeah Um, Nursing, unfortunately, generally does not have a seat at the table. Um, Going from running hospitals, 50%. uh, Now, I mean, I've never been invited to a higher level meeting. I've never been invited to a committee that wasn't just like, seemed like it was like a pat on the head, you know, safety, infection control, JCO audits, etc. I've never been involved in decision making or uh, anything of that nature. And and that is that is really frustrating for me personally. It's really, because we have great nurses with great ideas. And I mean, you talk to a nurse who's been at the bedside for 20 years. I mean, they can run circles around anybody in that hospital. Oh, yeah. I I don't understand why you can't, not me, I don't maybe need to be invited, but why don't you invite one of these badass nurses, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and a lot in the same, same, like you said, a lot of the doctors are stepping away. So are the nurses. Uh, a lot of nurses are stepping away from the bedside. A lot of them are getting their master's degree or they're getting their NP so that they can still see patients, but they can get away from the bedside because it's just exhausting. It's just a nightmare. Um, top executives at six of the nine largest Chicago area non-for-profit, this is important and we're going to talk about this soon, we'll get to it, Um, non-for-profit hospital systems pocketed substantial raises in 2017. Um, Their average pay hike was 37%, easily outpacing national trends. So when people say this is fair, inflation, it goes up. No, it doesn't. It doesn't go up fairly at all. Here's the other thing about this too. Like I said, it's difficult to find this information of just their base salary, right? And that's not all they get. They get a lot of incentives. They get these giant packages, retirement benefits, uh, healthcare, full healthcare for their family, everything. So it's like, it's difficult to, to really pin down what they get right
1: yeah it's all buried in like you yeah. said these bonuses and little little
0: yeah um okay so in many cases pay hikes are driven by bonuses based on performance targets that refre- reflect the broader push for greater efficiency um and quote unquote better patient care right and that's being measured now we see that by like readmission rates and and things mm-hmm. like that but we all know that's a little bogus too, right? Because you could yeah. put them on an observation unit and and it's fine, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so while financial performance still affects uh, incentive compensation, quality measures, including patient satisfaction, which is why our hospital is like a hotel now, um, safety and time timeliness of care are more heavily weighted by more, most organizations today than they were five years ago. There's a there's one there's one big one here too that I'm completely neglecting that I have to mention. If they care about safety, how about some nursing ratios? If they care oh about God. that, how, how about safe staffing? Right? Yeah. So they don't actually care about safety. They want. I just want to know like what what do they think it is on paper? Because it's definitely not what would actually make the patient safer. <laughs> yep.
1: Exactly. Like you said, all the things that are like most frequently measured, like the expired medications and readmission rates, things that are really easy to measure,
0: uh-huh.
1: um, but don't necessarily correlate as individual measures with, you know, overall patient safety.
0: There was a, um, a 2018 study in clinical orthopedics and related research journal found that pay increases for CEOs um, and other hospital executives has have grown steadily throughout the 21st century. Um, but in contrast, the rising cost of healthcare is undermining the American dream, basically. I mean, families who are working hard to get ahead pay nearly $20,000 per year in insurance premiums, um, deductibles, out-of-pocket costs for healthcare. And I mean, as we've said many times on this podcast, uh, medical debt is one of the leading causes of debt in America in general. So, I mean, I just, I don't understand.
1: You have patients making all kinds of decisions based on finances when they really shouldn't, like the idea is to get the best care, right? hmm Like you're not supposed to get like, substandard care that's like our whole thing that we pat ourselves in the back for right uh, but either the patient is unwilling to be on the hook for it or they they don't know they're going to be on the hook for it and then they get I think it's called like balance billing or something where the okay. hospital only agrees to cover this much and the insurance company only agrees to cover this much and the rest gets billed to the patient right and then they're right. like oh I, I owe a lot of money it, yeah
0: Yeah. And there's no way for the patient to ever know how much that amount would be. There's no way for them to know that. So, no,
1: because no one knows. Like, I can't tell the patient. You can't tell the patient.
0: Right. There's no
1: one with immediately within reach who Mm -hmm. can tell the patient up front, like, this is how much this is all going to cost you.
0: Um, I, I don't understand that. I mean, if if a monopoly is illegal, right? Which it is, mm-hmm. uh, how is this, how does that not qualify when you have a sick person laying in bed and they have to receive care from you and you cannot tell the person how much that care is gonna cost? Yeah. I and, don't understand.
1: And a lot of times patients don't get a say in which hospital they go to. So even right. if they even if they knew the cost up front, it might cost something different at that hospital. Yes, and they that hospital probably has a different agreement with the insur- your insurance company than you right. know your normal hospital does, and right. you're going to be on the hook for that.
0: Exactly. So I think it's also important when we're talking about you know they don't pay, uh, non for profit doesn't pay taxes. It's because it's it's technically organized as a charity under IRS. IRS section 501c3, which is important, um, with the mission of delivering affordable healthcare to the community. So that's why they don't pay taxes. Um, But this study found that these hospitals add billions of dollars annually to their bottom line. They lavishly compensate their CEOs and spend millions of dollars, which are generated by patient fees and uh to lobby uh, the government, so there's a lot of laws around what can be used as lobbying money, especially if you're a non-for-profit. But again, they, can, they find these loopholes and they skirt it and they have a lot of people in Washington, a lot of these major healthcare systems. That's where um, this one study found a lot of their money was going to. So to your question, what are these hospitals doing with all the, their cash on hand? Well, they are certainly not reducing prices for the patients uh you know as noted by the medical debt incurred by Americans last year <laughs> yeah the 82 hospitals referenced in in that study spent 26.4 million on lobbying in washington to defend the status quo to secure their own jobs because government money and charitable donations cannot be spent directly on lobbying these hospitals use the patients the payments from the patients directly to lobby gover- the government, um, which I've, I found just sickening.
1: It's kind of like money laundering.
0: Seems like, like, yeah. Because like money shibuya. is
1: money, right? And so if you take this thing that you can't spend on it, you put it here to make up a gap, you know, and then you take this money from patient care and you're like, oh, I can use this. Okay. And you yeah. basically make one hole and then fill it with the other. And These then you r- can still get what you want.
0: Is Robert De Niro our hospital CEO? Like, I'm confused. <laughs> I feel like
1: I would be so much cooler. Uh, yeah.
0: So yeah. At least he would wear a cooler suit than yeah. my hospital administrator. <laughs> <laughs> um, this information was very difficult to find. So personally, what I would say, we need to also, not only do we need to advocate for a non-for-profit system and for better patient care and uh, for our own, you know, our 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 own safety and our own livelihood, uh, not only that, we also need to advocate for more transparency.
1: Yeah. I think the problem is so much of healthcare has become fractionated Mm -hmm. um, so that no one is really taking ownership of that. No one who can communicate that to the patient is taking ownership of it.
0: So, so I guess what I'm saying is what we need is a market that features transparency, um, because that will give us more choice, right? And all of that would drive down costs and maybe help restore doctors and nurses with the patient relationship. Because if I'm being honest, I think these hospital CEOs and these drug companies and these insurance companies, they are, they are completely interfering with our relationship with the patient and the patient feels that. The patient, oh, yeah. patient doesn't feel cared for.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, a lot of the blame, because they don't see this. They right. just see Us for however brief amount of time. And so a lot of times you and I will get blamed
0: by the patient
1: and I, I don't necessarily blame them. It's frustrating, but you know, us fixing this is going to be a widespread cultural shift.
0: Definitely. Yeah. It's going to take big changes to, to fix this problem because it's, it's a big problem.
1: <laughs> yeah. And we all yeah. have to get together and say like, no, we've had enough. And yeah. we, you know, we can't anymore say, cause you know, like you said, we, we used to just kind of take our hands off when it came to billing and money because we didn't want it to affect the care we were giving,
0: but mm-hmm.
1: we don't have a choice. It, it is affecting the care we're able to give anyway.
0: Right. Whether yeah. we
1: it's- accept that or not.
0: Yeah, it's happening. Let's let's try to change it for the good, to benefit the patient and for ourselves. Oh my gosh! Well, this is great. Thank you so much for joining me and and listening to me about the history of uh, hospital administration.
1: (laughs) Hey, I learned a lot too.
0: (laughs) Yeah, me too. Oh my gosh, it's such a big topic. All right, it was so nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. Yay! Okay,
1: take care. You too. Bye.
0: Okay, bye.